Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. I think one of the best ways to do it is to get fat adapted because as you lower your glycogen stores and burn through that during the fast, and then you have the ability to tap into fat and produce ketones, those ketones fuel the brain and it tells your body, you're okay, you got ketones coming, you're using ketones, everything is going to be fine, you're going to feel good. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Did you know that food sensitivities, low energy, and skin issues can all be caused by inflammation related to immune system imbalances? That means in order to heal your symptoms, you need to bring your body into balance. And in order to do that, we need to develop a resilience to stress. That's why I've created the Immune Resilience Protocol, which is a personalized framework that combines nutrition and the nervous system to help you fix your inflammatory issues. By optimizing the four core organ systems, the gut, detoxification systems, thyroid, and adrenal health, we heal and nourish your body from the inside out. The results are that most of my clients reduce their symptoms by at least 50 to 75% in just the first couple of months working together. And since I teach you in smart yet simple terms, the proven frameworks I use, you'll be educated and empowered to continue healing, improving, and sustaining your health on your own so you don't have to rely on seeing me forever. If you want to learn more about food sensitivity and fatigue freedom, which is open now. My calendar is open now for the last time in 2023. I won't take clients again until early 2024. I'll have calls available just through September to assess your case one-on-one and see if it's a good match to work together. You can book a call or learn more at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. That will be in the show notes or just kristabigler.com and navigate in the navigation bar. Talk to you soon. All right, today in the Lesterous Life, I have Ben Azadi. And in 2008, which feels so long ago at this point, but really not that far long ago, he went through a personal health transformation of shedding 80 pounds of pure fat. Ever since, 
Ben has been on a mission to help 1 billion people living a healthy lifestyle. He's the author of four best-selling books, including his latest, KetoFlex, which I do like that name, now knowing that that's like your version of carb cycling, which we'll talk about. Ben has been the go-to source for intermittent fasting and ketogenic diet since 2013, and he's the host of a Top 15 podcast, the Keto Camp podcast, and YouTube channel by the same name. Now, last week, I got to be interviewed by Ben on his podcast, and I little did I know, I really like Ben. So I'm excited to have him here. I'm excited to know him, and I'm excited to talk about this other area that I don't even foray into too much on this podcast, and maybe it's because I have my own history with it. Maybe, maybe not. And I'm okay. Like, I'm okay with it. We're going to talk through some of these issues, problems, or like who it's really for and maybe, maybe not for yet. So welcome to the show, Ben. Krista, thank you for having me. I had so much fun with you on my show last week, totally geeked out and learned so much from you. So I am grateful for the collaboration today. Yeah. So I listened to some of your podcasts before our interview today. And I do think you have so many good ones, but I think let's just get started with either mistakes or maybe even myths, which could, those could kind of like commingle a little bit. Let's just kind of get yep. started with that. And I've got lots of other questions that will end up being unpacked through that. So if you have some mistakes, what I want to say about this is people are familiar with ketosis at this phase. As a dietitian, we originally learned about ketosis as a medical diet for epilepsy, especially in pediatrics, right? Doing this really crazy specific measuring of the food situation. And then in probably 2016, 2017, I was working in a intermittent fasting and ketosis type program online as a behind the scenes person. And then I think that's when it was really, I feel, really at its heyday. Maybe you would have different feelings. And then kind of here we are. So people are familiar with it. But what I was thinking about before this conversation is that, well, you've got a good niche here because I think it can be easy, but I think there's a lot of education to doing it well. Otherwise, I think you can really crash and burn, unfortunately, if you do this wrong. So I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for education. And even if you kind of know what you're doing to get a little bit fancier with the education, like improving the food quality, because if you're consuming a larger amount of fat and or proteins, then the quality of that may make a really big difference, which I know you're into too. So let's just start with unpacking mistakes or myths around fasting and ketosis. Yeah, I would love to. So I got into keto and fasting at the same time back in 2013. I was actually transitioning away from a plant-based diet, a vegan diet for a year and a half. I remember back in 2012, I read the China study book. And back then, I didn't really understand how to read studies. So the book kind of duped me into doing a plant-based diet. <laughs> so I did it, but it didn't work out for me. And I was pretty dogmatic about it when I did it as well. But I didn't feel well. And I did some lab work. It verified how I felt. So eventually, 15 months after that, I ended up transitioning away from a plant-based diet. And I was still exploring, okay, what else is out there? There was paleo. Keto was out there. But to your point that you made, it wasn't at its peak yet. I do think 2016, 2017, it did peak. And it's still popular, but it's not as popular as it was in those years. But I did come across some articles and some books about a ketogenic diet. And of course, a lot of the research came out of the 1920s as it was used for epileptic seizures and the effectiveness of them. And then the drugs were created. So they kind of forgot about the dietary approach in general. But I discovered a lot of things about keto. Let's start with the myths, right? A lot of people look at keto as a diet. And while that is accurate, I don't view it that way. I don't teach it that way. I view keto as a metabolic process. And when we think about our ancestors, and I don't think we should do everything our ancestors do. However, our ancestors all went through this metabolic process called ketosis because they didn't have food available all the time. And if they did, let's say it was the winter, 
they didn't have a lot of carbohydrates in general available to them. So by default, they had to burn through their sugar reserves, their glycogen stores. And after that, what's the next option? Well, you got to burn some body fat. The body fat is sent to your liver, ketones are produced. And that was used as a survival mechanism to help their brain function to stay alive and alert so they could kill their prey and, and survive. So thankfully, we have this process. And it was part of the reason why we survived back then. Now we fast forward and we see that study that came out from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill in 2018, showing that uh, about 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy, looking at different health metrics. That was before COVID, right? It probably got worse. And there's some recent studies showing that it did get worse. So I categorize these individuals that are metabolically unhealthy as essentially being in a keto deficiency. They're just burning glucose, burning sugar, which is, I'm not opposed to that, but when you're stuck burning sugar and burning glucose and you don't have this metabolic flexibility, you've forgotten the other pathway of burning fat, it can be problematic. It could create inflammation, it could create reactive oxygen species, and it could create things like type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance, et cetera. So what, what I do is I teach these individuals, and that's the majority of the people that come to me, those who are obese, those who have high blood pressure, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, PCOS, and I get them into this metabolic process of ketosis. And I get them there in a very efficient way. We have a gradual way to lean into it. But the first myth, and I'll talk about the way I do it, but the first myth would be that it's not necessarily a diet. It's more of a metabolic process, and it's not new. It's just nuance. It's just maybe new to some people. When we look at it that way, we can understand that we're designed to use this metabolic process, not all the time, but from time to time. And an example of that, Krista, is babies, right? I looked into some of the research regarding babies that are breastfed. And to my surprise, I saw that babies actually naturally are going in and out of ketosis when they're breastfed. And we know that breast milk has saturated fat and cholesterol. And then the argument is, but there's sugar in breast milk. And that is true. And the baby is so efficient at using that sugar that it naturally goes in and out of the state of ketosis. And I asked the question, why? And, and I believe it's because it helps the neurological development of that baby's brain. The brain is mostly fat. So we're essentially born into ketosis. So our burning fat is our primal birthright. But we wean off the breast milk. We're fed a high sugar formula feed. And then we're eating high carbohydrates every two to three hours. And essentially, we forgot this process. So the myth is that it's a diet, but it's really a metabolic process. And I just want to teach people to tap into it and then tap out of it. And I'll teach you a little bit of how I do that. Yeah. All right. So metabolic process, what's the next myth or issue surrounding kind of fasting at this juncture in time? Yeah. So the next myth is that you have to eat a whole bunch of fat. While that can be true, you can do that and get into ketosis. I don't actually recommend that, especially for people who are overweight, because your body's going to have to burn the calories from the fat versus the body fat. So in the beginning, I do the first seven days, I do look at it as a high fat diet, if you want to look at it as diet. So it is a high fat nutrition plan where we're teaching, we're gradually decreasing their carbs while we're increasing healthy dietary fat, healthy dietary protein. And we're getting their body familiar with burning fatty acids instead of sugar. As we make that shift, we check blood ketones to make sure that person is looking at their ketones, it's 0.5 or higher, beta hydroxybutyrate, which is millimoles per liter, we use a keto mojo. Once they make that shift and I see they're in ketosis, we actually lower the fat and we focus on protein and the carbohydrates are still low because we want to keep them in ketosis. And now it's not a high fat diet. It's more, okay, let's allow the metabolism to burn in body fat and not all this excess dietary fat. You have a lot of people doing keto who are putting butter in their coffee or adding all these extra oils to hit a certain percentage. If you go on Dr. Google, you're going to see it needs to be like 85% fat. That's not necessarily true once you're metabolically flexible or in, in, in ketosis. 
then you could get the fat from your body fat versus the dietary fat. So that's the, the second myth right there. Go ahead. I have oh, another I, one, but. Well, I was going to stop and talk a little bit about getting into ketosis because you just mentioned that first week you kind of do high fat. I heard you talking about this 222 method and then also one of the negative things. So there's, again, a lot of education about doing this kind of, let's call it the right, maybe a, a right way. Let's try to make this a more optimal situation because it can kind of head south if you don't have good electrolytes. I put myself into a stupid position once upon a time. Also, I was like, oh my gosh, on the floor. I was like, I need electrolytes. <laughs> I am not okay. So talk a little bit about kind of prep. What happens if people just are like, I'm just going to like go into a once a day fast or whatever. You're talking about, oh, let's actually prime ourselves or let's get a little bit more ready to become metabolically flexible or burn fat for fuel instead of carbs for fuel. So talk about the 222 and -hmm. talk about the issues around electrolytes because we're talking about this as if people know what we're talking about a little bit. So I want to make sure I acknowledge those things. Yeah, no, great question. So yeah, let's talk about that. If somebody goes from eating 300 grams of carbs per day, which the average American is doing, and they drop that to under 50 grams per day, which is for most people, that's what you got to do to get into ketosis. And they do it within like a day or two that's a dramatic shift. So what happens is you have your body lowering insulin because you're lowering your carbohydrate intake, which is good, but it's a dramatic lowering of the insulin. So as you lower insulin in that effect, you're going to lose all this excess body weight. And that is also good because you're going to feel lighter and look lighter. But here's the problem. The kidneys also go through this sort of diuresis process where it sheds all of these electrolytes. And if that happens fast, to your point, Krista, it's not going to feel good. People call it the keto flu. It's really more accurately described as carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms because you've done it too fast. So what we want to do, number one, is have a gradual decrease in your carbs while increasing those electrolytes. And part of that 2222 rule has electrolytes in it. So I'll explain what that rule is. For the first seven days until we get that person to ketosis, I have them follow this rule, which is every day starting day one, as you're lowering your carbs slowly, you consume two tablespoons of olive oil or avocado oil two tablespoons of grass-fed butter or grass-fed ghee, two tablespoons of coconut oil or MCT oil, and then two teaspoons of sea salt where you get your electrolytes and minerals. And as you do that, it should prevent those symptoms. As a matter of fact, I've taken a few thousand students through this process, and if they follow that structure correctly with a gradual decrease with the 2222 rule, there's no symptoms that will manifest because the body makes that switch. I don't start fasting yet, and here's why. The person, like you said, goes and does a 24-hour fast, and that is another way to get into ketosis. But if you don't have the ability to burn fat and produce ketones, it's going to feel awful. If you want to go do CrossFit, but you've been sitting on your butt for 10 years and you go do a CrossFit workout, you're going to hurt yourself. It's going to feel awful. It's going to look awful. So you want to build up the fasting muscle. And I think one of the best ways to do it is to get fat adapted because as you lower your glycogen stores and burn through that during the fast, and then you have the ability to tap into fat and produce ketones, Those ketones fuel the brain and it tells your body, you're okay, you got ketones coming, you're using ketones, everything's going to be fine, you're going to feel good. But if you don't have the ability to produce ketones and you try to force the fast, your brain's going to send your body some signals like glucose is dropping in the brain, it's dropping in the body, go get carbohydrates. Even if you have great willpower, your body will create glucose from gluconeogenesis. So I don't think that's the ideal way to do it. I think it's important to get a variation of fat adaptation and then pair it with a fasting routine. And that's a great one-two punch. Okay. I realized I have multiple questions about these first two myths. So first of all, in my functional medicine approach where I'm like, okay, optimizing liver, optimizing gut functional, um, which ketosis and fasting can be assistive with, but sometimes 
is tricky, which we'll get to later. So one of my questions is, as you're adding this fat, are you ever running into issues, people without a gallbladder, with sludgy bile? And that's like the first thing that comes up. Anything that pops up sometimes. I mean, even skin manifestations could pop up because skin's just this organ that's safe to clear things out. So do you ever see anything like that? Or do you kind of just educate around in advance? Yeah, it's a great question. You talked a lot about the liver on my podcast. It's actually the number one struggle that I see people face when they do keto, and that is their liver is sluggish. And they're, I call it the soccer mom liver because it does everything like a soccer mom, right? So one of those processes, of course, is producing bile. And as you eat more fat, you need to produce more bile to break it down. But if that liver is so sluggish and it's been beat up from alcohol, medications, high processed foods, it's going to have a hard time keeping up. So we emphasize a lot of bitters right from the start. We emphasize things like arugula, high quality coffee, if they process coffee well. We utilize apple cider vinegar, lemon and limes. I talk about rosemary, thyme, and basil to season their food. So bitters to stimulate that bile flow. Now, if that doesn't do the trick, then I might uh, recommend like ox bile supplementation, et cetera. If they don't have a gallbladder, they're going to have a different approach. Because as you know, Krista, the gallbladder is that storage house. The liver is what produces the bile. So they don't have the storage house, but they're still producing bile. But now the liver has to uh, make up for the absence of the gallbladder. So if we start really introducing all these fats and they don't have that storage house, probably going to get diarrhea, probably going to get some stomach issues. So we actually do something different for those individuals. We definitely have them on an ox bile supplement. We might be doing other things to support the liver like coffee enemas, uh, phosphatidylcholine push, castor oil packs, etc. And we'll spread their fats out. So we actually do smaller meals more frequently until that liver adapts to the amount of fats they're having. And that might take 21 days to 28 days, depending on the person. But we actually spread those fats out and they might not do the full-on 222 rule. They might cut that in half with the exception of the salt. Are you recommending any blood labs baseline and then later? Because you can probably see pretty dramatic shifts in that sometimes. And I feel like your population might actually have some of those common labs that would be out of range. And then does everyone purchase a ketone monitor, it sounds like? Just well, I recommend all- it. Not everybody has it in their budget, but most people do and they'll purchase it. And that's something that me and our coaches look at. We do recommend a test that we utilize called a meta-oxy test. And mm-hmm. We have pretty much all of our students that are enrolling now take this test in the beginning and then about three months in. And Metoxy, it's a urine test they do at home. It's looking at malandialdehyde, which is where looking at the cell membrane health and it's looking at the amount of inflammation. And some studies suggest it's uh, about 50 times more accurate than a blood test looking specifically at cell membrane inflammation. So the darker the vial turns, because you collect your urine, put that in the vial, the vial has an agent, wait a minute, and then it turns a color. The darker it turns, the more inflammation you have on that membrane. And a lot of people are on the darker end when they start. And it's super cool to have them retest and see that drop along with asking them how they're feeling and seeing how their symptoms have improved. Along with that, we do recommend other tests like HSCRP. We, we recommend like a full thyroid panel. We recommend, of course, A1C and fasting insulin. Those dramatically improve, especially fasting insulin. Some people want to go a little bit deeper and do things like a C-peptide, looking at their beta cells in their pancreas. That dramatically improves. But not everybody has that in those labs for their budget. The meta-oxy is something we do add as a part of our program when they start. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if you send that out to them. I feel like do. Daniel Pompa does a good job yep. really promoting that test. And yeah. then, but to f- like go find it on your own, it's kind of like, I don't feel like it's easy to find. You can buy like a whole bunch of them if you're a practitioner, but otherwise just trying to yeah. order well, on. You got to be a practitioner to order it. That's the yeah, thing. Right, right. Do you have them do it? So you have them do it before and later with that one? I have them do it right, b- right before they start. 
And then they take a photo of their results and they either share it with the coach or share it with me on a group coaching call. And then I have them do it about 60 days in. So sometimes 90 days in, but you know, two to three months in. And we can see that shift, especially, and we could talk more about this, especially as they remove these inflammatory like seed oils and vegetable oils, we see a dramatic mm-hmm. shift in those scores. And then Dr. Pompa is, is actually my mentor. I, I love that guy. I was just on a call with him an hour ago. So he's doing some great things with his program as well. Yeah, cool. Okay, back to the first myth, which was it's not a diet, it's a metabolic process. That brought up for me, when you have people coming in, I think we could say, I'm not going to make up any statistics. A lot of people have some kind of relationship, food relationship issue. Maybe everyone has a food relationship issue at some point, but to a varying degree. Example, and I think we'll circle back to your story, which I probably should have started with, but you did a good job opening with it a little bit. Even you see this all the time when people first recognize food as medicine, they're a little dogmatic. I mean, that's kind of how you know, like, your relationship with food is still developing when you're a bit dogmatic sometimes around it, right? And that was kind of your even your early phase. So what do you do? How do you help people or how are you handling food relationship issues that come up? Because I feel like there is some rules to follow to like get into optimal states, all in the best interest of the person. But what do you mm-hmm. do when people have like challenged food relationship issues and they're coming in? Yeah, it's a great question. There's different types of food relationship challenges that they have. It could be emotional eating, of course, sugar addiction, food addiction. And I had a lot of those during my teenage years and in early adulthood as well. For those individuals, I'm not a food addiction expert, right? So I would recommend they work with a sugar addiction expert. But I I can say this, they can work with a food addiction expert and combine what we teach for their protocol because it does work really well. Once we get their metabolism healthier, and they start eating more protein, animal-based protein. We know what that does. Animal-based protein is great to be satiating macronutrient, what it does for cholecystokinin and leptin and peptide YY, really helps them make better decisions. But a big part of that puzzle is the fundamentals, right? All right, if we're not getting quality sleep, if we're not focusing on stress, you know, you have your podcast, The Less Stress uh, Podcast, if we're not focusing on that, it doesn't matter how much keto you do, how much fasting you do, we got to get those fundamentals nailed. And we focused on that in the beginning. And that helps tremendously with them making better decisions. I help them find out what their why is. Like, why are you doing this program? Why are you trying to lose weight? It's not as superficial as I want to lose 50 pounds or something underneath that. So we get clear on the why. And sometimes it requires having a specialist, like a food addiction specialist. Sometimes it doesn't. And then it gets to a point where they've been doing keto and I want them to flex out. But somebody who has a food addiction still or a sugar addiction, they're not going to flex out the same way as somebody who doesn't. So we have that conversation and figure out an approach that works for them. But to your question about the being dogmatic, that is something that I struggled with for many, many years. Even when I started doing keto, I also was dogmatic. And I think that does us a big disservice. It really does. I'm all for health and metabolic flexibility over dogma. I love keto, but I don't think it's the thing we should all do forever. It's a tool in the shed. So we got to look at all these different tools like fasting and keto and paleo, whatever it is, as tools in the shed and utilize them the right way. Yeah, you used a good analogy. I was listening to one of your podcasts about, I think you said it, keto is like a chainsaw. Great mm-hmm. if you know how to use it. Destructive if <laughs> you are right. not using it right. And I think that's super reasonable, super, super reasonable. So let's talk about this third myth. The third myth is that you could eat any fats and get into ketosis. And there's truth to that. You can. You can eat bad inflammatory fats and get it, get into ketosis. But here's the myth. Keto-friendly foods are not the same thing as health-friendly foods. There could be a huge difference. And arguably, some of these keto-friendly foods are more detrimental and inflammatory than processed sugar and some experts say even smoking that I've had on my show. 
So I'm referring to these bastardized fats, these adulterated omega-6 linoleic acid seed oils that are processed with detergents and high heat that are oxidized and very unstable. And they're all keto-friendly. They're in a lot of keto products. They might get you into ketosis, but I got to tell you, they're not healthy. So we distinguish between healthy fats that are stable, the body could use, the membrane could use and build the membrane, and then the fats that actually destroy the membrane. So we got to distinguish between those different fats there. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up membrane health. This is not discussed very well yet. So inflammation destroys cell membranes in short. And you basically have to rebuild them. And if you're mem- cell membranes, my stupid analogy is it's like a lawn that's dried up and you can't really plant seeds in a lawn that's dried up unless it's like nice soil. So you've got to really support and improve those cell membranes, which is, I talk about it a lot because of skin stuff. But the other thing that you can see if people are having really poor absorption or poor cell membrane status, a dead giveaway to me is like diarrhea trying to take a vitamin. Because they're not even mm. able to get that into the cell. And so it like causes that for them. You mix it with things that support cell membrane health and it's like it magically fixes it. It's pretty cool. So that's fun. You just brought up that you started using, you know, in any program, business, whatever someone's doing to help people, there's iterations. We improve it as we go. Right. And so I'm guessing you didn't have this meta oxy test at the very beginning of keto camp. Just a guess. I don't know if that's true or not at the it very beginning. But like you said, as people change their seed oils, vegetable oils, they're seeing that change. Do you have any other? And this is cool. It's very fun because people love metrics. They love yes. something that tells them something, right? Like that's just how humans are. We're like, we just mm-hmm. want to be validated, right? I'm guessing the seed oil changes or the fat quality changes came a little bit later, right? Not at the very beginning of either your journey. I mean, I feel like this is actually in its heyday right now. This conversation is in its heyday. So... Any other changes besides like what you're seeing from that metaoxy test that you could share when people kind of change up their seed oils? Anything, or do you see them accelerate faster? Like anything that's kind of dramatic enough, or you know, you can share a little before and after as you made that shift in your programming. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I always ask them to pay attention to their symptoms, right? And one of the most common symptoms that I see people face in my community, brain fog, is a big mm-hmm. issue these days. And we know the brain is loaded with mitochondria. That's really a mitochondrial issue. So we know seed oils really disrupt and impair the mitochondrial membrane, right? And the membrane is key. I I love geeking out about the membrane. I lecture on it. You're right. It's so important. I believe the membrane is, is where the intelligence lies, not the DNA nucleus. The membrane tells the DNA nucleus what to do. So we need the right integrity, the right fluidity in that membrane. Good things need to get in. I love your analogy about the garden. We need to plant good things that could get into the soil. And then we need things to get out that are bad, like reactive oxygen species, et cetera. So with those changes, I've noticed individuals have their mental clarity come back. And it doesn't happen right away. And I think it's a combination of of two things. Number one, they're reducing inflammation by uh, replacing the seed oils with healthy, stable fats, like saturated fats and monounsaturated fats. But number two, ketones are also been have been shown to be signaling molecules that actually stress the mitochondria to help them create more mitochondria mitochondrial biogenesis. So what happens is you get healthier mitochondria becoming stronger, bad mitochondria that the body's getting rid of through mitophagy, all because of ketones. So that's one process there. And a lot of that happens in the brain because the brain is really dense with mitochondria. So when you're in ketosis, that's one of the most common things I hear, hear people say, I got my brain back. I just feel so much better. And again, it doesn't happen right away, but over time it does. And then the process of removing the seed oils is also going to help with that as well. But joint pain, skin issues, 
weight loss because what happens is these seed oils are toxic. They're like toxins. The body treats them like toxins. And the solution to pollution is dilution, right? So these toxins go and they hide out in your fat cells. Linoleic acid are stored in your fat cells. And what happens is when you have a whole bunch of linoleic acid and other environmental toxins, which you talk about, you start burning body fat, which is great. And you start releasing these fatty acids into the bloodstream. The liver picks it up and uses it. All great things. Then you dump all these toxins with it. And then you recirculate them back in and the innate intelligence thinks, wow, every time I burn body fat, we dump toxins and it hurts us. I'm going to slow down fat oxidation. I'm going to slow down fat burning and the person experiences weight loss resistance. So we got to do some things to clear that out. I focus a lot on doing the right detox, environmental detox as well. But seed oils are also considered a toxin Mm -hmm. in my book. Yeah. Toxic burden is kind of the name of our current life and game right now. And there's not necessarily avoiding it. It's just being able to support it and doing our best in mitigating it. I mean, that's kind of my approach. I'm like, well, I cannot uh, change all of the natural disasters happening in the world right now. So I'm doing no. my best. <laughs> do my best. All Keep right. those pathways open, right? Let them yeah. do their job. Just support. Just support because yeah. we live in a challenging environment. So fourth myth. Fourth myth is that men and women do keto the same way. And I would even take that even farther and say women who have a menstrual cycle versus women who have a postmenopause or postmenopause should do it the same way. That's also a myth. We got to do it differently and do this according to their hormonal cycle. Menstruating women and postmenopausal women have a similar 24-hour pattern. We'll call that like the sun, 24-hour pattern. Menstruating women have more of a 28-day cycle similar to the moon, right? So the perfect example, what we teach is if you have a menstrual cycle the week before your period, right? That's the week where we want to build progesterone, which is very important for the cycle. And you don't do that with strict ketosis. You don't do that with a lot of fasting. You actually do that with some feasting and feasting on some healthy carbs and making these hormonal conversions. So for you, we're actually going to take you out of ketosis the few days leading up to your period. Once you have your period and you're in that bleed week, we shift you back into ketosis. If you want to do a longer fast, that's a good way to do it. But we look at a week-by-week breakdown on this hormonal cycle. For example, the second week, we have a shift where testosterone increases. So then we tell them, hey, let's do more strength training and bump up your protein, get more mTOR that week, right? Because we want to utilize the testosterone the right way. So we want to go with the hormones, not against it. And for men, I've seen could be a little bit more aggressive and they could do more fasting, more keto, they'll get faster results because their hormonal pattern is recycling every 24 hours. Now, postmenopausal women, they are similar to men in terms of that they have more of a 24-hour pattern, but... At this point, as you know, Krista, the adrenals are picking up the slack here for the ovaries shutting down, right? sure are. (laughs) So if you're not supporting the adrenals and you're really aggressive with fasting, it's not a good idea. So we focus a lot on oxytocin, the love hormone. We focus a lot on adrenal support. We find a good sweet spot for you to practice fasting. It might be 18-6 for one lady or it might be 14-10 for somebody else. But we determine that by looking at things like HRV and just asking about their symptoms, et cetera. But that's the myth that everybody does it the same. It's not true. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, I heard you talk about that around women before their period. And I think it's wonderful. I'm guessing this is an iteration of programming. Oh, for also. sure. And yeah. I remember you said last week, a lot of your audience is women that are right either perimenopausal or postmenopausal. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of that big group. And what happens sometimes to us is like, you have your story and you did this, you had your health journey and then you start helping people. And then it's like a little bit of a whiplash when the people who need your help are like, oh, I was not prepared for the postmenopausal women or whatever. And there was a lot to learn to support them. So I just, and I would say like, this is 
perhaps a criticism, everything you said in that myth encapsulated some of the criticisms that I've held for a while around ketosis and intermittent fasting is humans. So what's cool about keto and intermittent fasting, if done properly, is that you could get some cool immediate results. And then people love that, right? So they get that pretty quick validation. So that's cool. But then our human behavior is to do more of the same thing. And Mm. so then you can get a little bit, let's just use the same word, dogmatic, and you just do more of this thing to the point where nourishment becomes a little bit of an issue. And then sometimes the adrenals get not in great shape or, hey, guess what? Your cortisol, like you're not addressing the stressors in your life also, Mm -hmm. or you're not just not nourishing and you're living on coffee and cortisol. And what I see happen, which is kind of honestly my favorite audience, is this sluggish thyroid stuff, like before it even shows up on blood work, because it's actually faster to help and people still don't feel good and they're kind of getting lost between the cracks. And then that not great adrenal status, because again, they're going to get lost between the cracks conventionally, they're not really going to get a lot of support. They're just not going to feel great. And they're going to put on those high performers are going to put on a happy face as they're able. They're just going to keep trucking. And so I really appreciate you bringing that up because that's been a little bit of a conversation is a lot of fasting research is around men and not necessarily women. So I'm glad you're kind of making this, you're definitely making this distinction around that. So anyway, thank you. Yeah, I like you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And like you said, you know, it's it's what I learned working with a lot of women. It's like, you got to just not be dogmatic. That's my goal. And, and understand, okay, this might work for this guy, but it's not going to work for this lady because obviously it's not working for her. She's getting symptoms. Her hair is falling out. She's yeah. chronic fatigue, et cetera. Obviously, it's not working for her. Let's figure some things out. So I know you've been on Mindy, Dr. Mindy's podcast and I work with her too. She's in my team. So is Dr. Pompa. So I get to learn from them too and all the other doctors in our group. So it's not just the people I'm working with. It's a combination of all the patients in our group. We meet every Tuesday. We do case studies and we see what's working, what's not working. So I get to use some of those golden nuggets that they get, those clinical pearls and use it with my group too. Oh, that's essential as a practitioner. That's very cool. All right. And I want to circle back to HRV, but next after the fifth myth. Yeah. The fifth myth is that you do keto forever. And Mm -hmm. I do not recommend that. And it's interesting, Krista, because I get asked to speak at a lot of keto conferences. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. I love it. I love keto. I love the keto community. And it's an honor to speak at these conferences. I'm going to keep doing it. But my message is very different than most of the keto speakers there. And there's a lot of brilliant people that I'm friends with that don't agree with me. They think once you're in ketosis, you do it forever. It's something that you do continuously. And I do not agree with that at all. It is not something we do forever. It's considered a stressful state. And again, not all stress is bad, but due to much stress, that is bad. That hormetic curve drops steeply and you lose all the benefits and hurt yourself. So I don't think you should do it forever. Ancestors didn't do it forever. When they had the opportunity, they flexed out with carbohydrate. So I think there's a point in time where you achieve this metabolic flexibility, you've done the work, and now you flex out. And that's the premise. You actually intentionally flex out. And that's going to be different based off of the person. But that's a big myth in my space, because a lot of brilliant people that I am friends with think you should do it forever. And we just disagree about that. Yeah. And I like what you're saying. You flex out. And I think it's like an attractive term, but you could maybe use the word carb cycling also, right? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, exactly. Same thing, right. Yeah. And I mean, these last few myths are literally why I like Ben, right? This is because if <laughs> anyone if stuff. anyone ever says like do this forever, I'm like, I don't know, forever's a pretty long time. I might change my mind. <laughs> I might change my mind. I might want to eat my birthday cake. <laughs> so now that we've talked a little bit about this, let's dance a little bit back to your story a bit. And you just mentioned HRV. So let me start there. I know you mm-hmm. said you like to look, it's another cool metric that you kind of like to look at. In your space, in your program. So let's talk about HRV. HRV is impacted by fasting and or 
let me just put a bunch of little HRV questions in here and answer however you want. How are you kind of looking at measuring? And I know you started looking at HRV. Yours was at 38 and improved. Let's talk about how you improved it, how you measure it, how it's impacted with fasting. Yeah. Wow. You've done your research. Good job. (laughs) I love it. I love heart rate variability as a, a measure of the adaptability of the nervous system. It's a great gauge for me. I use it for many, many things. When we think about the nervous system, we have those two primary branches, the sympathetic tone, which is fight or flight, which is really important. You just don't want to be locked in there, right? And then we have the opposite, which is the parasympathetic, rest, digest, which is very important. You don't want to be locked in there as well. There's a proper balance. It's like a delicate dance in between these two primary branches. And HRV, heart rate variability, is giving you a good gauge your nervous system is adapting to the stressors. If you're getting a proper balance of sympathetic versus parasympathetic, everybody's going to have a different baseline, a different average. I believe, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, I think there's a big genetic component to everybody's average. Like for example, my fiance, her average HRV is like 155 or around there, 140, 155, which is, which is very, very high. Usually like elite, elite athletes have a high HRV like that. She's not an elite athlete. I think it's a genetic component for her. For me, when I started tracking, to your point, my average was around 38. And I found the average and I'm like, okay, that's my average. Let me build that up. Let me find ways to balance out my nervous system. Because for me, my problem was I was too sympathetic. And I knew that. So sympathetic. That's just my personality. And I knew I needed more parasympathetic. So I did a lot of experimentation. I did less fasting. I did more flexing, so less keto. I did things like brain tap, PEMF mats, more grounding, breath work. I've did a whole bunch of things. And, you know, fast forward to now, my HRV average is around 65, 70, right? And that's my baseline. But here's what I see with my baseline. If I see that I wake up in the morning and I check my HRV on my aura ring and it's 42, that is very low for me. That is a day that I don't want to do much fasting. I don't want to really exercise. I want to do things for more parasympathetic. So that's what I teach my students. Like if you have a really low score, it's probably not a good day to do it at 24 hour fast that you had planned. It's probably not a good idea to do that crossfit work or, or that sprinting that you want to do. It's a, more of a day for parasympathetic. Use it as a good gauge. We want to see that HRV building up over time. And if you see that, I believe we're getting a, a good balance of these two branches. Yeah, that's a cool story. Maybe that's a future episode. But this reminds me of I have my episode, which is with I think Dr. Eric Coram. His work is kind of revolved around this. And he says it doesn't exactly matter the type of data device you're using. None of them are perfect. It's just use the same one and your trends, which is essentially what you were saying. And so if you don't really have a little bit of longevity data, you can't really make... I think often I have people ask me this constantly. People will be like, well, this happened. What should I do? I'm like, if something happens one time, we just observe curiously. Yeah. If it happens oh, that's more a than great once, response. We, Such a great you know, response. start to look at it more like, okay, cool. Maybe this is something that there's actually something there. Because like anything could, any, like there's all kinds of goofy things that I tend to live in the world of goofy symptoms. And so you can't probably tell me something I haven't heard. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably true either. But uh, there's a lot of goofy stuff, right? But it happens once. Uh, observe curiously and yeah. then see if we can find a common denominator the next time. I love pattern recognition. I think you do too. Yeah, no, that's a great response. And I see that all the time with people looking at their keto mojo, like, why did my ketones drop? Why do my blood sugars go up? How many times did you tell? Oh, just this one time. It's like, all right, there's so many variables at play. Let's look at trends to your point. So I love your response there. Right. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about any people that you think need to kind of like proceed with caution or contraindications around doing ketosis, intermittent fasting, yes or no, or maybe people who could just benefit so dang much if they tapped into it. And you know what comes to mind, something I'm really interested in right now is cancer. 
And I feel like mm. the main, some of the big benefits of ketosis, which is a tough, like getting rid of diseased and damaged cells, improving that process because the body's like, eh, I don't have resources. I'm going to offload the trash, which it's improving that overall system. That's essentially what's kind of broken down before cancer starts. And so do you have those people ever walking through your program, which can get tricky because there's then a lot of medical intervention sometimes, but yeah. it may still be an option. And I think there's even some discussion around fasting around chemotherapy and different things. Any like hard pauses or stops around whether people should be doing this or people that you wish would tap into this more? Pretty opposite. Well, yeah. So with keto, I think the majority, and it's hard to put a percentage on it, but I, I believe the majority of the population could do some variation of ketosis. Some people might have some genetic SNPs where they can't really metabolize fat and there's some different approaches to that. But I, I think the majority of the people can do it, do it the right way. And when I say people, I mean adults, not necessarily children. Now with fasting, there are a little bit more take caution there. If somebody's underweight, somebody has an eating disorder or a history of an eating disorder, if you're pregnant, keto too, if you're pregnant, probably not a good idea or fasting yeah. for sure. Breastfeeding, probably not a good idea. You might dry up. What else? If you're under the age of 18 for fasting, probably not a good idea. You want more growth. I'm thinking of what else for fasting. You might want to chime in if there's anything I missed for fasting. But oh, if you have like severe HPA axis dysfunction, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Your adrenals are shot. That might not be a good idea. You might tap out at like 12 hours of fasting. So a little bit of caution there. But other than that, I think the majority of people could really benefit from it. If they utilize it the right way, it's going to be different for one person versus another person. So you have to find that unique approach that works for you. But it really works well when it's done right. You ever have people using CGMs in your program as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and and by the way, before I get to CGMs, you talked about cancer. I, I wanted to mm -hmm. finish my yeah, thought yeah. about that and then yeah, it will sure. transition to the CGM. Yeah, there's a lot of research on keto and fasting for cancer. And, and you mentioned the chemotherapy in combination with fasting. Vol Dr. Walter Longo has some good research on what fasting does to prevent chemo from killing the good cells, allowing it to get to the bad cells only. But uh, a couple of stories for you. A student of mine, Callie is her name, Callie Moynihan, she was diagnosed with stage four thymoma, thymus cancer, which is really rare several years ago. And she went down the conventional route and she had some procedures, she had some chemo, she had some operations and it kept coming back. So she got into keto and fasting. She discovered my podcast. She eventually joined my program, the Keto Camp Academy. She worked with her doctors, but we incorporated all these different tools that we have, red light therapy, fasting, keto, et cetera. And she did it and she took action consistently. And, and what ended up happening last August, so a year ago, August of 2021, she did a scan and it showed zero evidence of disease. It completely went away, right? This is an example of what you can do when you put your body in an anti-inflammatory state. A friend of mine, Owen Video, he's actually a YouTube guy, had the same cancer. He did the same thing in terms of keto and fasting, a similar approach. And he was able to reverse his cancer as well. And I actually interviewed them both on my podcast a couple of years ago to share their story. So I know those are just anecdotal shares, but I think it's powerful because th there's a lot of people out there that have done these different tools and they've seen what it's done for them when the medical industry has failed them in these regards. And I think if you were doing it in kind of this more informed, appropriate way, I've just seen it done poorly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> getting into ketosis done poorly. And it's like, I think if you were doing it more informed in a more nourished way, then you could get quite a bit of benefit, of course, right? As, yeah. as many of your students do. Yeah, that was fun. I feel like we could definitely do part two to that sometime. Where you want to talk about the CGM? Yeah, talk about the CGM. Go for it. Bring it on. I love a continuous glucose monitor. I'm always asked if you have to choose one, like we could call it biohacking tool, one health tool. 
what would it be? And I'm always back and forth between like an aura ring and a, and a CGM. I think they're both beneficial. I would probably lean more towards an aura ring because that you would use longer. But a CGM is right up there because it gives you a good idea of a lot of things. Number one, you mentioned earlier, people love like tracking things, right? This is a great way to track things. But on top of that, if you use a company, like I've used NutriSense before and Levels and they're all great. I've worn them for months and months and months just as like an experiment. But if you have somebody looking at your numbers, you are going to make better decisions because you know, if you they see a spike of 160 on that CGM, they're going to ask you what happened and they're going to hold you accountable. So just knowing that, for me, knowing that, and when I had my CGM, it made me make better decisions because I knew there was a dietitian looking at my numbers, but I know that that also helps my students. So just that accountability part is huge. But you could also identify foods that might be healthy for Krista, but not healthy for Ben because I might be sensitive to it for whatever reason. And my glucose spikes from blueberries or coconut whipped cream, which is actually a true story that spiked my glucose to like 170. And I realized, okay, I can't have coconut whipped cream. So anyways, it gives you a good idea of that. It also gives you a good idea of what stress does to your glucose levels, yeah. what ex- exercise can do to it. Postprandial glucose is something we check all the time and this gives you a good idea. Ideally, you want to go back two hours after you finish that meal. So postprandial, you want to go back to where it was before the meal. That's a good response from your body, your pancreas. And I think a big myth with the CGM, and I want to hear your thoughts, is that we should have a blood sugar level that is like within a 10 point range forever, right? And that is what the keto people teach, like always keep it below 90. It's like you're not giving your body any work to do. And that is problematic, right? So we want to see spikes, but not over 140. We want to see it go back to where it was and see a good response. I think that's more important. I think it's just useful to go in with a goal of like, what could I see when I was doing it? I wanted to see what stress did to my blood sugar. And is there any surprises here? Or what's the trends, right? Mm-hmm. And how much capacity do I have to like do that experiment right now? I think those are potentially good questions before something like a CGM as well. I don't know if it's necessarily has to be a, it could be a first step for some people, but for maybe what I do, I might recommend it as a later step occasionally. You brought up something related to CGMs, but it made me think of, you said your fiance, you thought, is there a genetic component to HRV? You know, I don't know, but I was going to ask you and I forgot about her family of origin. Do you feel like they're like really calm, caring people that like don't get stressed out or not really? No, they're the opposite. Okay. Her mom and dad are the opposite. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. That was just my curiosity because I'm just kind of intrigued right now about our imprinting on our nervous system from our family we grew up in. And so how does that impact HRV? Oh, yeah. HRV is simply a number. I really care. I mean, nervous system stuff is kind of my main thing. I like to kind of delve into around the research around right now because I feel like it's our big self-limiting factor on mm. real long-term progress, but just curious. So it doesn't apply. To I'm that. with you on that. It's not spoken about enough or studied enough. So I love that you focus on that. It is really the key, getting that yeah. nervous system balanced and everything else Im- improves automatically. And yeah. if you don't have that balance, you're going to get some symptoms. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like a shaky foundation. Everything will just break down eventually again because usually it's part of the initial domino impact. All right. So we talked about five myths. We talked about how keto is a metabolic process and not just a diet. We talked about that you have to eat a whole lot of fat and versus in- instead we talked about some of the things that can happen as you go into ketosis, especially if you kind of done improperly. We talked about that 222 rule. We talked about eating any kind of fat versus higher quality fat. And I think you were really specific with your 222 rule, which I think can be good, especially to beginner. It's like training meals. It's like, do this first kind of makes it a little bit easier, which is important. I've abandoned some of that because so many people come in on pretty awesome diets, but I need to remember not who's that person either. (laughs) 
And the fourth myth, which maybe, maybe I appreciate it. I appreciated all of them, but maybe I appreciated fourth and fifth the most. Men and women are different. Men, they might get more immediate feedback, whereas women might need to change it with not only their menstrual cycle, but with their cycle or phase of life, right? If they're menstruating cycle. Yeah. And then also not to be dogmatic or that it's not keto forever, that we're not flexing. And I would say that's just like my biggest complaint kind of with anything is like, yeah, yeah. I know you're really excited about this right now, but time will tell you how you really feel with something overall long term. And like you said, it is a metabolic tool we've had forever. And that's, I guess, you know, some of my attraction to your style is like, yeah, this is an ancient practice. <laughs> you know, like if you tap into it with the right mindset, you can do really well with it, right? It's just that when you have this wrong, maybe toxic mindset around things like, oh, I just want to lose. I get that most people have this underwriting secret goal of maybe not so secret goal of losing weight and it can be a tool there. But it's about, I mean, the real, I would like to say the pinnacle of health is seeking health and not just appearance because our, our, how I feel about our appearance can mm. vary a lot. There's a lot of those NSVs, well said. right? Yep. Well said. Ben, where can people find you online? Where do my you website is benazadi.com. I also have my podcast. Krista was just on there. It's called the Keto Camp Podcast and camp is spelled with a K. Well, thanks so much for coming on today and got some good info for our next conversation. Thank you, Krista. I look forward to it. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.